Clear, we're in the book of First Corinthians, so I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're in First Corinthians chapter four now, seeing how the church is called to be countercultural, and the church in Corinth was certainly struggling with that, how they are to be the church in the world. I know that we today continue to have those struggles of what the church in the world is supposed to look like and be like. So hopefully by God's grace, we'll learn and grow more about that through this book. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We will be reading all of chapter 4, so you can follow along with me as I, as I read there. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his, his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for its richness. 
We're thankful that it was written in difficult, challenging contexts. And this was certainly one of them, where your servant, your steward of the gospel, Paul, was challenging this church in Corinth. Lord, we too are a church that is not in every way as it should be. We want to continue to be shaped and molded together into the image of Christ, into all that you would have for us as your people. We thank you, Lord, that you are a loving Father, and in your love you correct us to help us become all that you desire us to be and help us to enjoy you. Lord, we pray as we spend time in this text that you would use it to your glory. Lord, we thank you that you save through the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sally has decided at two and a half years old that she will never eat vegetables her entire life. Billy is five and has told his parents he won't sleep if he cannot sleep with them in their bed. Jared argues with his dad every time he's told what to do. Cindy is six and thinks it's dumb that she can't wear makeup yet. Bo really does think that his future is in video games and not in doing his homework. Miley is obsessed with sending silly texts to her friends during school. Jason doesn't think that smoking pot is such a big deal. Sandy lies whenever it seems necessary to her. Jennifer is simply obsessed with her appearance. Peter thinks sports are the most important thing in his life. Justin has blown off high school and crushed his chances of going to college. All these examples are given by Paul David Tripp at the beginning of the chapter entitled Foolishness from his book Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. I'm sure that we can all think of our own examples, right? I can think of my own examples. My brother and I stashed our bike helmets under the pine tree around the corner as soon as we were out of sight from our mother. Kids, I'm not saying you should do that. I'm saying don't do that. But example of foolishness. I really did think for a while that my future was in Kentucky basketball. It wasn't. I'm five foot ten and white, so <laughs> not that white people can't play basketball, but yeah, there are limitations. And the list could go on. Paul Tripp goes on to say, the same theme runs through all these stories. It is the thing that their parents bump into every day. It is the thing of greatest danger to them. It's a thing that will complicate their lives more than they know. It's a thing that brings repeated conflict into their relationship with their parents. This thing is not about something they did. No, it's about who they are. They came into this world with it, and they have no ability to free themselves from it, and so need to be rescued out of it. It's that sad and dangerous thing the Bible calls foolishness. No, today's sermon is not about parenting, but as we go through our text, Paul relates to the Corinthians as a loving father does to children, and they, at this point, are acting quite foolishly like a two-year-old who's decided they will never eat vegetables their entire life. So he seeks to correct them in his role as a loving father by aiming at their hearts with the truth of the gospel. 
Just as the Corinthians struggled with foolishness, even though they were Christians, so too folly remains inside our hearts as well. And folly is not neutral, but it is against God. In the book of Proverbs, the fool is the one who has usually willfully, willfully rejected wisdom. Folly or foolishness can be described as thoughts, behaviors, attitudes, or judgments that lack sense, prudence, and discretion. Foolish behavior may be immoral or dangerous and is often used for self-destructive tendencies. So foolishness stands in contrast to wisdom, prudence, and sound judgment. The Corinthian church was redeemed of the Lord, but they were characterized by foolish thoughts, behaviors, attitudes, and judgments that were bringing destruction on the church. Thankfully, God, their loving Father, wanted to save them from their foolishness. He had had begun that good work in them, but desired to see Paul to help bring it to completion as their earthly father in the gospel. Though I know Christ, I still struggle with foolish thoughts, behaviors, attitudes, and judgments that bring destruction to me and those around me. The glorious news of the gospel is that God's grace has the power to rescue fools. God's grace has the power to rescue fools. As we work through the passage, we'll see three specific areas of foolishness that Paul is aiming at. First, the folly of misdirected fear. Second, the folly of misplaced hope. Third, the folly of displaced trust. Paul is aiming at these areas in the life of the Corinthians by describing what his gospel ministry looks like. He wants to use his ministry to help them understand their foolishness and sin and apply the grace of the gospel to it. So first, we see the folly of misdirected fear. The folly of misdirected fear. We're now in chapter 4, and Paul is still addressing the issue he started with in chapter 1 about how these Corinthians have gotten behind different leaders in the church, whether Paul himself or Apollos or Cephas. And then they've made cliques or groups around their support of their favorite leader. So since Paul is still addressing this, it must have been a pretty big issue. And indeed, it is a big issue because they're taking the church and making it a cult of personality rather than a gathering of believers in worship of God alone. So he says in chapter 3, verse 21, let no one boast in men. But the question then becomes, and Paul asks, essentially, if it's not about men, then how are the Corinthians to think of the apostles? Paul says in 4.1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards the mysteries of God. The word used here for servants of Christ in the Greek is associated with under rower, one of the men who would row in the lower part of a ship. So it's a sort of lowly service that is subject to direction. Paul is saying that they, the apostles, are Christ's lowly servants, not heroes, not rock stars. Next, he says that they are stewards. During that time, a steward would have been a manager or administrator of a large estate. The steward himself, though having much responsibility, would have been a slave subject to his master. The steward did not own the estate, the master did, but he helped him manage it and dispense the master's provisions. Paul and the other apostles were stewards of the mysteries of God, 
basically meaning that it was their job to dispense God's provision, which is the message of the gospel. And their role was, and in their role as stewards, they had to be found faithful. Now, Paul begins to get at some of the foolishness that fuels the Corinthians' immaturity. He says in verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, the Corinthians obviously struggled with pride and arrogance. So I'm sure when they heard from Paul, basically, I don't care what you think, their feathers are probably ruffled. Prideful people are certain, certain that their opinions and judgments are very, very important. Although Paul surely wanted them to become more humble, he isn't saying it doesn't matter what you think as a direct means to encourage their humility. Because of their pride, they probably would have just balked at Paul's stance if he had just stopped there. So what he does is he goes beyond that. He is showing them that we can be set free from the folly of misdirected fear, which leads to bondage to the opinions of man, by ultimately and deeply, deeply caring about what God thinks of us. What God thinks of Paul is so important to Paul that even judgment by human court is of little significance to him. And he's telling them to defer their judgments until the return of the Lord, who, when he returns, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Human judgment is inaccurate because we don't know all and we can't see all. God knows all and sees all. Now, it's important to understand that Paul is not saying here, he's not saying only God can judge me. We've all likely known someone that is clearly living out of step with God's word, is displaying little to no fruit of the Spirit, and says, only God can judge me. Well, he will, and he already is, if you are clearly living against his word. God has given his word to the church to make judgment by his word within the church. But for Paul, there are no scripturally founded accusations against him or his ministry that the Corinthians are making. They're bringing foolish things against him, like, we like so-and-so's ministry better than yours, or you're not a good enough speaker. Paul had encountered the risen Christ himself, was humbled to the dust in light of his majesty, and entrusted as a servant and steward to proclaim the gospel. His fear of God led to a boldness and courage that excluded the fear of man. This brought freedom and maturity that he desperately desired for the Corinthians. The Corinthians were still living by foolish human wisdom, and their opinions and judgments were destroying each other and the church. They seemed to have much fear of man, but little fear of God. We too tend to be people who fear man, but have little fear of God and are crippled in and I'm sorry, we too tend to be people who fear man and are crippled by the opinions and judgments of others. We allow ourselves to be defined by the job we have, the car we drive, the house we live in, latest vacation or experience we had, and we can be defined by our kids' achievements, abilities, behaviors, or where they go to school or how they do in school. And then we often get our worth based upon what people think of these things about us. Paul is saying Know what God thinks about you. And he's spoken that clearly in Christ. If Christ has died for your sins, that is what God thinks about you. 
He loves you that much, and he's redeemed you, and he saved you. But know what God thinks about you. Seek his approval and let everything else fall away. Man's opinion is of tiny, tiny significance compared to God's opinion. These opinions were creating division in the church, and they had the possibility of doing the same today. If we're living for the approval of others instead of God's approval, it will hurt the church as it did in Corinth. If we're all living for God's approval, it will lead to unity. So how do you struggle with this folly of fear, which is a misdirected fear? That is too little fear of God and too much fear of man. Is it your performance review at work? Is it your mother-in-law's comments? Is it your likes on Facebook? Is it keeping up with the Joneses next door? Maybe what they have or what they're into? Is it fear of others really knowing you, including your hidden sin? Paul answers the folly of this misdirected fear with the good news of the gospel. In verse 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? About these questions, Paul asks, A commentator says, he says this, In a nutshell, the central theological truth that the Corinthians, in their divisiveness, seem to have forgotten is that all their abilities, opportunities, and blessings are from God, so they should not boast. And this cuts to the core of our fear of man by increasing our fear of God. If we are all growing in the realization that all we have, both spiritual and physical has been received by him, from him, by grace, how can we also not, not help but grow in a deep humility, a thankfulness and fear of him? Boasting becomes excluded then, as does an unhealthy concern for the opinions and judgments of others. We need to repeatedly ask ourselves this question that Paul asks. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? I needed to ask myself this, this question this week as I was going through this passage to address my own heart. I asked it of one of my children this week when they were having trouble sharing. What do you have that you did not receive? As we ask this question, God's grace will increasingly rescue us and our church from the folly of misplaced fear the fear of man. So next, Paul speaks, and quite colorfully, as we'll see, to the folly of misplaced hope. In verse 8, he says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And I would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. We have to address two things in this part of the passage, the manner in which Paul speaks and the content of what he's saying. First, his manner of speech. He's clearly being sarcastic, which might be a little surprising to us. But before you jump to be justified in your use of sarcasm too quickly, let's consider Paul's use of it for a moment. At times, biblical writers spoke in the foolishness of sarcasm to hopefully, by God's grace, help those who are acting as fools to see their folly. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Answer not a fool according to his own folly, lest you be like him yourself. 
So that says, answer not a fool. The next verse, verse 5, Proverbs 26 says, answer a fool according to his folly. So do answer a fool, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Can be confusing, confusing, but there are times that we should not answer a fool because the interchange will have no end and we'll just end up looking like a fool and there's, there will be no point in it. But there are times that we should answer a fool and doing so and answer him according to his folly that he might see his foolishness. And this is what Paul, I believe, is doing here. He's answering the fool according to his folly. The prophets actually also sometimes spoke to idol worshipers sarcastically to help them see the foolishness of their idol worship. So it's possible that there's a place for sarcasm, but the majority of our usage of it is not helpful or life-giving. So even Paul, even though Paul uses it, don't think that that just gives you a free pass to use it. Uh, Charles Hodge puts it well when he says about sarcasm, he says, The rightness of the use of weapons so dangerous depends on the occasion and the motive. If the thing assailed be both wicked and foolish, and if the motive be not the desire to give pain, but to convince and convert, their use is justified by scriptural examples. There was wickedness and foolishness amidst the Corinthians, and Paul uses a powerful weapon out of love to convince So if you think you can use sarcasm as rightly as Paul did, go ahead. If not, which I think would be most all of us, use it very sparingly, if at all, I would say. So we have addressed the manner that Paul is speaking in, but what about the content? What Paul says in this section reveals the folly of misplaced hope. When he tells them, you have all you want, the context here is likely food. He's he's saying you are full. The next two words, you have become two verbs, you have become rich and you have become kings, both indicate that the Corinthians felt themselves to be secure and in want of nothing. Complacency is a very, very dangerous state. And Paul wants to help them see this. The worldly wisdom of the Stoic philosophers that the Corinthians held so dearly had self-sufficiency as a high ideal. But Jesus basically said, In Matthew, he said, blessed are those who are not full. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So Paul is saying, if you think you have progressed to a point of not needing further growth or not needing the influence of us apostles, you're in a terrible place. He goes on to say, without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Somehow the Corinthians had come to believe that they had already attained all the blessings of Jesus' reign as king, been made perfect, and were sharing completely in his reign, and in doing so had left the apostles behind. Paul responds tongue-in-cheek, I wish you were reigning as kings, because that would mean that Christ has returned. And if he has returned, we would be sharing his rule with you. He goes on to tell them what it is like to be an apostle. They are like men sentenced to death. They are a spectacle to the world. They do hunger and thirst. They are homeless. When spoken against hatefully, they respond with kindness. 
He ends by saying, We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And indeed, according to the world's mindset, which the Corinthians were still living by, the apostles were the refuse of all things. The apostles were aliens, strangers, and sojourners in the world. In this world, they did not hope. In this world, they were not at home. If we feel comfortable and at home in this world, something is wrong. We resemble the Corinthians more than we do the apostles. Although they had become believers, the Corinthians' hope and comfort was still in the things of this world. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul puts forward the generosity of the Macedonian church who gave generously even amidst extreme poverty. But this, but this was not the Corinthians, at least not at this point. They were living in the folly of misplaced hope. So where is your hope today? Is it in the here and the now? Or is it in all the promises of God in Christ, which will be finally and fully fulfilled when he returns? And then he'll fully and forever establish his kingdom. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've heard people use the phrase forever home in reference to the home that they want to raise their family in and grow old in. And that makes me cringe on the inside. This world and nowhere on it is our forever home. How much are we and my family is challenged in this as well, deliberately sacrificing so that we can intentionally invest more in God's kingdom? Maybe it's intentionally living more simply to give more of our resources, whether that be time or money or something else, to the Lord and his kingdom. Maybe you'll be moving, even with a young family, to Milwaukee, inner city Milwaukee, or the Toma tribe of Chad to be used of the Lord there. Perhaps it's something as simple as momentarily sacrificing your comfort to introduce yourself to someone here at church that you don't know. Maybe it's raking leaves for a neighbor. Maybe it's going out of your way to befriend the outcast. Especially if you're a middle school or a high school student, I'm sure that you have many opportunities to do that, to befriend other students that are on the outside. This is Christ-like life and ministry. It is the ministry of the apostles and is to be ours as well, taking up our cross daily and following Jesus our king into eternity. But I'm not saying this should be done in a legalistic way as if we have to, or as if by doing such would earn God's favor. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. And all those who truly follow in his footsteps are fueled by the joy of knowing him and the hope of him being glorified. In the video shown earlier, Dave Carter's wife said about being in the desert of Chad, she said, you don't end up here because you like the beach or you think it's cool to live in an exotic place because it is a hard place to live. But if you feel like God is calling you to be here, you know this is the only place for you to be. They are there because their hope is not in the world. It's in the promises of God. 
I'm not saying this God's will for all of us to move to reach an unreached people group. But if our hope is rightly placed rather than misplaced, I think it would be happening a lot more often. Is our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Or is it on the outcome of the Packer game this week? Or our salary? Or is it centered on what people think of us? Our best life is not now. Our best life is to come. It is very countercultural and radical to have our hope in God and His promises and not in this world. As we do this, it will look radical and countercultural to the world. That will be uncomfortable for us. The Corinthian church still looked much like the world, and in many ways, we do as well. So we've seen the folly of the Corinthians, the folly of misplaced fear, and the folly of their mis- misplaced hope. Now we see the folly of a misdirected trust or misplaced trust. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 17 says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. There's a change in Paul's tone here. Someone commented that his sternness gave way to tenderness. They were his beloved children in the faith. And his love for them required him to challenge them with truth. Paul contrasts his relationship with the Corinthians with other guides. Though they have countless of these guides, they don't have many fathers. Paul is set apart from these guides in two ways. First, his love for the Corinthians. And second, the special honor his words should have received from the Corinthians since it was through Paul that they first heard and believed. The Corinthians seem to have displaced their trust and given these guides more influence in their lives, likely because these guides weren't challenging them as Paul was. How great is our tendency to do the same? We generally like to listen to people that don't challenge us and make us feel good, right? When people do challenge us, we'll often turn the radio station unfriend them on Facebook, avoid them in person, or maybe even leave a church. If we are following spiritual leaders that only make us feel comfortable and never challenge us, we are in danger. The gospel is challenging. And if our desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, if that's our desire, we should welcome challenge. An example, an athlete who desires to win an Olympic medal, he doesn't want a coach that's going to take it easy on him, right? He wants a coach that's not only wise, but is going to say and make him do hard things to get to the goal that he wants to achieve. It's the same with us. Our goal is Christ-likeness. We want a coach or we want people involved in our life that are going to help us get there. Paul was displaying here to the Corinthians and to us that apostolic gospel ministry will challenge and confront in love. 
We read in John 6 that after Jesus said many hard things, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus did say very hard things. But where else can we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Paul, like Jesus, said hard things. And we, in whatever place of spiritual leadership or influence that God gives us in the church, are called at times to say hard things, not out of judgment or pride, but out of love, as Paul does here. Likewise, we're all called to receive hard things as well, spoken in love. Not just to say them, that would be the easier part, right? But also at times to receive hard things that are spoken in love. Diedrich Bonhoeffer put it simply, he said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Paul brings correction with the words of the gospel as a loving father that the folly of misplaced fear, misdirected hope, and displaced trust would be removed from them. But he doesn't just say, don't do that. He says, imitate me. And even he sent Timothy to remind them of how to imitate Paul. Are our lives worthy of imitation? Perfection is not the goal for our lives to be worthy of imitation. We don't have to be perfect. But are we living in a dependence upon the grace of God? Are we asking ourselves, what do we have that we did not receive? He ends by challenging the attitude to which they will respond with this correction. He says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Whether a child to a parent or in another relationship, those corrected have a choice in how they respond when initially corrected. If it's with pride and hard-heartedness, the rod is needed. If it is in humility, gentleness is in order. So we've seen throughout this text, we've seen the Corinthians' folly of a misdirected fear, a misplaced hope, and a displaced trust. Though Christ has begun a good work in them, foolishness lingers. Although their foolishness was being displayed in their behavior, it ultimately points to their hearts, just as it does with us. Foolishness points to our hearts. They came into the world with this foolishness, and they have no ability, neither do we, to free ourselves from it. And so we need to be rescued out of it. God's grace has the power to rescue fools. To rescue fools like me, fools like you, fools like your children, and fools who have not yet even awakened to their need for Christ. We are prone to the folly of misdirected fear, which is fearing man more than fearing God. We're prone to the folly of misplaced hope, hoping in the things of the world rather than ultimately the promises of God. We're prone to the folly of displaced trust, willingly following easy guides rather than loving, corrective fathers. Just as a loving earthly father does not leave his son alone in his folly, but uses loving and wise correction to drive the folly from the Son, so our Heavenly Father has not left us alone in the destruction of our folly. 
He sent Christ, who was crucified. In 1 Corinthians 1, it says, To us who are called, Christ's crucifixion is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Lord lovingly, graciously brings correction into our lives to save us from destruction and give us the joy of sharing in his holy character. He does this work directly and through the means of the local church and various spiritual leaders that he puts into our lives. We're left today with the same question Paul posed to the Corinthians at the end of chapter 4. As we, like them, are consistently in need of correction, the question is this, should the Lord approach us with a rod or a spirit of gentleness? If we're prideful and hard-hearted, the rod is needed. If humble, correctable, and contrite, the spirit of gentleness is appropriate. Let's pray together. I want to leave us with um, a few verses from Hebrews 12 um, regarding discipline. It says this, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Let's go out remembering that a loving father, as our father loves us, disciplines us, his children.